The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. invite you to turn to the prophet Hosea, his book, Hosea chapter 7, we pick up tonight. And we are in the middle of a series, and we're in a tough spot in the series. There's a lot of judgment passages. Uh, We come to the, the rocky terrain of Hosea's prophecy filled with indictments against Israel's idolatry, their immorality, and as you'll recall, the whole book is prefaced on this understanding that the Lord has called the prophet Hosea to marry a woman of unfaithfulness, to serve as a living illustration for the relationship between God and his unfaithful people. And so we come tonight in our text in chapter 7 and in a judgment setting filled with stinging accusations. As we pick up in chapter 7, I will skip over the first part, but it compares Israel to an oven to illustrate her sexual sin. It calls her a useless, half-baked cake that is practically worthless. As we pick up in verse 11, Israel is a silly dove that knows not which way to go. She is a treacherous bow that is more harm to her master than to enemies. But overarching all these vivid images and themes is the main issue of Israel's pride. The people's failure to cry out to God from their heart. Israel will not humbly acknowledge her guilt, but rather covers it up with further corruption. Like her first parents, she chooses to listen to the father of lies rather than the father of light, who alone guides us on the path of true freedom. So as I read God's word, may we listen that our hearts, too, might return to the pathway built upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hosea 7, beginning in verse 11. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like birds of the air. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them, because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak lies against me. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. They gather together for grain and new wine, but turn away from me. I trained them and strengthened them, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my law. Israel cries out to me, O our God, we acknowledge you. But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. 
They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Throughout your calf idol, O Samaria, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They are, all, they are from Israel. This calf, a craftsman, has made it. It is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head. It will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations like a worthless thing. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers, although they have sold themselves among the nations. I will now gather them together. This is the word of the Lord our God. Let us pray. Father, we once again ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What do you do when you are stuck? When you make a mistake, are you tempted to cover it up? If you're in a tough situation, do you fight like mad, like a bird caught in a net, only making matters worse and further entangling yourself? Sometimes we do things for which we know better and we grow later on to regret it. Such an incident happened to me this past Thursday. This past Thursday, we had one of the heaviest rainfalls in Lancaster County in recent memory, at least. At least in my seven years of being here, I haven't seen it quite rain quite so hard. But on Thursday, I had an appointment to take my van to a collision center to have, a, uh, to have it assessed for insurance purposes. My van was hit by another driver just a few weeks ago, causing some minor damage. So I had to go get it assessed. And I committed mistake number one, going out into inclement weather when it was not absolutely necessary. So I'm driving along and going down Mannheim Pike, and I unfortunately miss my turn to the collision center. Either the sign wasn't marked right for the road, or I just missed it completely because of the rain. Well, I keep going, and I take the next turn. And largely due to the rain, and partly due to my not paying attention, I'm coming along, and there's water in the road. And before I know it, that water is up to a foot high. Now, being from Houston, I'm very familiar with floods and rising waters. And my impulse should have been stop, go in reverse, and get out of that situation. But I unfortunately ignored that impulse and kept driving. And before I knew it, I was in up to 18 inches of water which was too much for my poor little van, which quit on me. (laughs) And it would not restart. So here I am in a situation, pouring down rain, rising water. The water is beginning to trickle into the front door of of the van. And uh, things are going through my head at this moment, frustration and a little bit of fear. I'm realizing not only will I miss my appointment, but I'm going to have to have someone tow me out of here. And, of course, going on in my head is, gosh, is my van going to be permanently damaged? And I still don't really know because I have to get it assessed this week at my local mechanic. 
And, of course, I'm wondering, what will I tell my wife? And, uh, but the worst fear of all is imagining myself being on the 5 o'clock news Thursday night and half the church saying, well, look at Pastor York there on the top of his van. I, I, no lie, this happens all the time back in Houston, Texas. I never thought it would happen to me. What do you do? Well, impulsively, I, I cried out. And 911 responded and really couldn't do much for me. Uh, so I prayed. I called my wife, and she prayed for me and had to tell her what happened. And uh, there was a fireman nearby attending to another situation, and he, he informed me that there really was nothing they could do for me. We had to either wait it out and that to call a wrecker would only put me on a long list of backlogged record service for other fools who were stuck in water like myself. And uh, so I called my wife to come and pick me up. Well, while she was traveling down, a nice nearby mechanic saw me and pulled over and backed his truck in, and we strapped it up and were able to haul it at least out of the water onto dry ground. And, of course, it still wouldn't start, and we'll find out this week whether it ever starts again. We do foolish things. But even fools are wise if they cry out for help. I vividly remember a lesson learned my very first week working for CEC Consulting, the firm that hired me right out of college. A white-haired senior partner gathered us young rookies together to give us a pep talk about teamwork. His message was very clear and simple. Ask for help. He has seen more projects and more teams fail because of proud workers who get themselves stuck in situations and refuse to cry out for help. We come in our text tonight and find that Israel is in a tough spot. She faces the growing menace of the Assyrian threat. Syria to the north, Egypt to the south are tempting the king of Israel and his advisors to join them in an alliance to resist this foreign power from the east. Israel sought help, but in the wrong way. They did not seek it from the Lord. Now, verse 11, our opening verse, compares Israel to a silly dove vacillating back and forth between the Assyrian power and the Egyptian power trying to play off one another politically. We might say that Israel was like a naive teenage girl, being wooed by two different boys, while ignoring the warning of her wise father, who knows that neither of the boys are any good for her. Israel will reap only capture and captivity, illustrated by the image in verse 12, of the Lord capturing them like birds caught in a net and hauled away into captivity. You see, Israel's problem was was not only that she ignored the Lord. She even goes on to impugn the Lord's character. In verses 13 to 15, we see three ways in which Israel rejects and maligns the character of God. It says that the Lord longs to redeem his people, and yet they speak lies against him. Verse 14 says that they seek grain and new wine, but they give the credit to Baal, a false god, rather than Yahweh. Well, not only do they speak evil of Yahweh, they plot against him. 
And so here in these obscure verses, we see prophetic acuity, foreshadowing the very treatment that the Lord Jesus Christ would suffer in the hands of his people. The very one who was sent to deliver them was treated shamefully. Israel and her leaders disdained the servant of the Lord, speaking evil of him, plotting against his life, and even ultimately taking it by manipulating the Roman authorities. A hardened heart, bent on folly, cannot receive help when it is committed to self-willed destruction. Sin blinds us. With it, we cannot recognize that which most benefits us. Perhaps you've tried to help somebody who is under the influence of some chemical drug, only to be rejected scornfully. People, when they don't think straight, cannot respond properly to aid offered. Medical professionals seeking to give life-saving medications to children by way of a syringe are fiercely resisted. Many parents have expressed the pain of a grown child refusing assistance and even maligning his or her parents for trying to help. Our independent pride seeks its own way and prefers destruction over success to avoid acknowledging weakness and need. Such as the sad mystery of fallen human hearts. Verse 14 summarizes the tragic condition of the people of God. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but wail upon their beds. Israel is like a teenager, throwing a tantrum up, into her, up in her bedroom, rejecting her father's care for her. She will not cry to him. She will try to control and manipulate him, but rather she stews in her self-pity other than give him her heart. Better her way with pain than the Lord's way with blessing. Such is the way of the evil one. Translations other than NIV indicate in verse 14 that Israel gashes herself in order to get Baal's attention. We're reminded of the prophets of Baal who in contest with the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel begin to slash and gash their bodies, letting the blood flow to get the attention of their god Baal. False gods require self-harm. The Lord God requires no such thing. In fact, he required that of his own son on our behalf. But what he requires of us is to turn to him with a humble heart of contrition. Many of us here are familiar with the little boy from Peru, Beltron, who's been taken in by the Keel family. This child, though seven years old, looks much younger and smaller due to underdevelopment, the consequences of severe neglect by his birth mother and early caregivers. One of the side effects of his lack of development is a seemingly inability to cry. Regardless of how much pain or discomfort he experiences, 
he will not even let out the slightest whimper the way a regular child would do. His caregivers speculate that as a young infant, though he would cry and cry expressing his need, there was no response from an available and loving parent. And so over time he learned not to cry and now has seemingly lost the ability to do so at all. Healthy children born into this world are wired to cry to express their need and their want. Wise parents learn to distinguish those cries between hunger and pain and sleepiness that needs nothing more than a shoulder and a nap. Our Heavenly Father has wired us to cry out to him. And when we fail to use this heart impulse, we do damage to it. We can actually dull our sensibilities by seeking after false gods or by neglecting to call upon him who alone can deliver us from the calamities of life. Idolatry dulls our hearts. It weakens and softens our heart cries. Men addicted to pornography grow dull to the needs of their wives and fail to engage with their children. They lose a biblical understanding of true intimacy, which can only be fulfilled in a right relationship with the Father and healthy relationships with those people God has called him into. A woman addicted to shopping, the lottery, and other desires of the heart will grow dull to her husband's need for respect. Those seeking security through material things who fail to rely upon the Lord nor cry out to him for the grace needed to trust him will suffer when finances are tight, when a marriage is troubled, when children are out of control. When life is overwhelming. In a growing and disturbing trend, more and more children are becoming addicted to their iPods, to texting devices and other technologies for networking and entertainment, and grow dull to relational engagement. You find kids at their schools or at the mall preferring to text on their devices than have face-to-face conversation with their peers. A whole generation is stunted in their growth to engage in mature dialogue with important adults in their lives. This is an entire denial of the purpose for which we were created, to be in relationship, to pursue intimacy with the living God, and with people made in his image. May we learn to cry out to our God, that he might help us and give us a new heart renewed in the likeness of our gracious Savior, the one who pursued us, made made us for himself, to enjoy intimacy relationally forever and ever. In chapter 8, we find a stern warning For the people of God in all ages, to the churches of our day, and we can even apply it to the political and socioeconomic situation of America. It refers first to how Israel broke 
covenant with God. How she rejected his law. And so now is but a carcass waiting for a vulture, not an eagle, but a vulture to prey upon her. In the common vernacular, we might say, God is saying to Israel, you're dead meat, a worthless thing. And yet in verse 2, Israel's response is a half-hearted, oh God, we acknowledge you. They may acknowledge God's presence, but not his lordship in their lives. It is superficial. Like the superficiality of today's common sentiment that we need God in our homes, our schools, our government, and even our churches. Many people want to feel good, but not let God in. They want God's blessings, but not God himself. People in our day and age love their idols, yet hate the painful consequences of living as though God did not exist. In many ways, the church of today is not all that different from the days of the judges. We find the pattern repeated of how Israel would commit idolatry, suffer oppression from her enemies, cry out to God for deliverance, and God would respond graciously, raising up a judge to deliver them, enjoying peace for a little while. But it was always short-lived as Israel returned to her idolatrous ways and repeated the cycle over and over again. Everyone doing what was right in his or her own eyes. Israel, in the days of the judges, during the ministry of Hosea, and the people of God today, in verse 3, likewise, reject what is good. It seems that people today do not even know what is good anymore. I remember a silly children's story from years ago of a kingdom that forgot how to eat. And they tried to stuff food down their ears and up their noses, but no one was nourished or replenished. And finally, a little boy watched birds up in a nest eat with their mouths. And so he instructed the whole kingdom how to eat properly. Such is the moral dilemma of our day and age. Like the Ninevites, not knowing their right hand from their left. People today want God to raise up a leader to save us. And yet ignore the biblical criteria for what leadership is. Israel, in our verse four, verses 4 and 5, set up kings for themselves without consulting the Lord. Churches. And the American public do the same today in the obsession for the cult of personality. I believe we've done that with our current president. My fear is a pendulum will just simply swing the other direction and we'll chase after the next personality who has a, has a plan to save us and our nation. Friends, let me just offer another reminder. There is only one Messiah. There's only one who can save us. Yes, go vote. Be politically active. But do not trust in it. Only God's kingdom will persevere and prevail. It says in our text that Israel was guilty of making idols out of her wealth, her gold, and her silver. 
do the same today. There are many banter, many bantering arguments in media about what is the cause of our present great recession. I think the answer is pretty simple. That people have been living beyond their means in homes and businesses and in government. Living on entitlement rather than on production. Our text refers to the infamous calf idol. The idol that echoes back to the original idol, the calf that was built at Sinai under the leadership of Aaron. That which Moses confronted, rebuked, and pulverized, making Israel drink it out of a stream. Well, some figment of this calf idol was rebuilt in Israel under the leadership of Jeroboam when he rebelled against the house of David. And so the prophet here rebukes Israel for worshiping the golden calf. In our culture today, go to Wall Street, what do you find? A great bronze bull statue. The hope of American culture, of the great bull market. We still worship the same gods. The same false promise of of unrelenting prosperity. Like the city of Athens, we too are a land filled with idols. And so such vivid language, images of destruction and judgment, are intended by the Lord to gain our attention to the grave danger that faces us lest we turn back and repent, like a sign warning you to turn back before going across a bridge that is out. Trusting God is hard. It requires us to swim upstream. It is far easier to go with the flow and follow along with the idols of our age. I'm convinced that as believers we grow weary under the constant assault of material gain, the promise of government fixes, of health care reform, and other false promises of utopia. I believe that we too, like parents worn down by their children, when a young one comes along and they're no longer engaged with discipline, so we too get worn down. And our defenses are no longer strong enough to stand up against the idols that would undo us. But I turn us to Isaiah forty thirty one, with this reminder. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Turn away. And so we too must turn away from those things that are worthless. And not grow tired and weary of repenting. We may grow hoarse. We may but be able to offer but a mere whisper in our crying out to our God. But we're exhorted from the word of God to not give up. For we trust that he hears us. Though our cry be feeble, yet when it comes from a genuine heart, the Lord always responds to deliver his people. We come to verse 7 in the last portion of our text tonight. 
We find a vivid reminder that we do reap what we sow. The image of wind and natural disasters. Israel was seeking aid, and the mere seeking of aid from Egypt was a mere chasing after the wind. But what she would get in return was a violent storm of the Assyrian wrath. If you play the world's game, you will suffer the world's consequences. In my brief lifetime, I've experienced and lived through many hurricanes and tornadoes. And between the two, I would choose the hurricane. Tornadoes come unpredictably with great devastating and deadly force. And they say that whether you're at school or at home, when a tornado watches in effect, you go to the center of the building. You get away from windows. You get away from the doors. You go underground if you have a place to go to get out of its pathway. Likewise, when the storms of life hit, anchor deep in the Lord. Run to the center and find refuge under the cross of Jesus Christ. We've had a guest speaker these past two weeks in our Home Builder Sunday School class, a woman who came to share with us her painful and yet redemptive story of having undergone an abortion as a young woman and describing to us the effects of addiction, the cycle of shame and guilt, and finally deliverance by the grace of Jesus Christ. In her story, we learned that her father abandoned the family when she was but five years old. Due to the work of local missionaries, she professed faith in Christ when she was ten. Over the next six years, she was discipled and pledged herself to go to the mission field with New Tribes Mission. But then her mother remarried when she was but 16 years old, and she ran. She ran away from the Lord, and four years later found herself giving up her child on the abortion table. Eleven years later, she found herself in drug rehab. And she recounted to us her initial meeting at an NA, a narcotics anonymous meeting with well over 40 women in the room. Her curiosity got the best of her, and she just had to ask the other women, how many of them were there for recovery from an addiction that began after having had an abortion? Every woman raised her hand except for one. That was back in 1981. Abortion has consequences. Life has consequences. We reap what we sow. But God is the great healer who restores the years that the locusts have devoured. This woman who came to visit us last week and this morning is a modern-day gomer who is helping other women to save their very souls by turning away from the destructive idols of our culture to find hope and peace and reconciliation through the cross of Jesus Christ. She is an advocate for the unborn and also for many women who need healing at the cross. She indicated to us that in the public square, nobody really talks about abortion nor the after effects of what women experience. 
it silences the cries not only of the unborn, but the unspoken cries of women whose hearts are crying out for mercy and deliverance from the demons that threaten them. She told us that in 2007, the latest year that we have these figures, that over 600 women from Lancaster County sought out an abortion, mostly outside our county. She went on to challenge us to remember that no matter what kinds of storms may come to test our faith, cling to the Lord like a man clinging to a fixed pole in hurricane-force winds, to dig deep into God's word as a search for buried treasure. And that it is indeed. If we pursue him, if we cry out to him, if we respond to his initial cry to our hearts, though we stray like a wild donkey, as verse 9 indicates, though we sell ourselves to false lovers, as verse 10 indicts, it is the Lord's will to gather us back again to himself. In the words of Isaiah 54, 6, the Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit, a wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. There was hope for Gomer. There was hope for Israel. We are never so far gone that we cannot respond to God's appealing grace have mercy upon us to draw us back to himself. Reading this book of judgment is painfully difficult. It's like a mirror. It shows us who we are. It, it wears us down. It may even soften our heart cries and reminds us of our failings. We can read the book of Hosea and question, how is it that God can possibly redeem us if we are no better than our forefathers? And yet the consistent message throughout is that the Lord keeps an open hand to his people. Despite our treachery, our thieving and our lying, our deception, our backslidden ways, by his grace, we learn to cry out to him with a heart made new, washed and purified by the precious blood of Jesus Christ we find a model prayer, the sinner's prayer, at the end of Hosea chapter 14. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall, but say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made, for in you the fatherless Find compassion. I will heal their waywardness and love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. All of God's anger, quenched and satisfied at the cross, where Jesus took our punishment on our behalf. And so, in response to the message of the cross, we too can offer the fruit of our lips in the words of Psalm 50. Verse 15, the Lord says, And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you will honor me. Offer 
your heart cry to the Father, who gladly welcomes back his sons and daughters. Let us pray. Dear gracious God, we thank you that you are a loving Father who perseveres with your stubborn, obstinate people. Thank you that through Jesus Christ, you give us a new heart by which we might cry out to you, that we might seek you and follow you, that we might hear your voice beckoning us. Oh Lord, help us to hear. Help us to follow and to cry out to you. Be our deliverance, our hope, our joy, and our strength as we depart. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.